what you want is for drivers to realize automatically that even though they can't see it yet, they're about to come upon a bicycle. And it can't just be the e-horizon that we talk about, but it could be another truck that's blocking it. I don't see the bike and then the truck pulls away and suddenly I see the cyclist. Welcome to The Bike Lane. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. With us today is John Quain, JQ, founder and editor-in-chief of OnTheRoadToAutonomy.com. JQ is a technology journalist veteran and contributor to the New York Times, contributing editor at Tom's Guide and columnist covering smart cities for digital trends. JQ is my favorite kind of journalist, a hands-on techie like me. He regularly is testing, reviewing, and researching all things tech. He's a firm believer in the value of autonomous vehicles and their ability to save lives while reducing pollution. JQ recently founded an online weekly guide to developments and news about connected and autonomous vehicles called On the Road to Autonomy. JQ, welcome to the bike lane. Good to be here. So let's, before we dive in on all things tech, let's talk a little bit about background. So you and I go, go back quite a bit from, from CES, uh, from like the, the the small CES, the big CES and (laughs) before autos even had really software teams, you've covered just about everything and, and you do have a wide breadth of coverage and it's just serendipitous that both of us are in the same bike lane now. Right. I like to tell people when they ask me about reporters that you're one of those folks that has a better understanding of products than many industry insiders. So I'd love to start off with what are some of the hot topics today you're covering on your weekly guide on the road to autonomy? Obviously, electrification is the big one right now. I mean, obviously, I was thinking of autonomous vehicles and self-driving cars and some of those technologies, which are all coming and all still there. Uh, you know, LiDAR is now being installed in, in some vehicles that are hitting the market. So that, that's going to become a reality, but it's just taking longer than people thought it would. What's really happened, of course, is the electrification and EVs have taken off much faster than anybody predicted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people are adopting that. And so that's sort of the, the hot thing right now and figuring out, you know, is, is it time for somebody to buy one yet? And I'll, I'll write stories for AARP, for example, helping those folks to decide, can they, you know, is it time for them to make the transition over to an EV because they have the disposable income and they, you know, the flexibility. So uh, for older drivers, even to try to get them into it. But um, yeah, and e-bikes obviously are just gone gangbusters. The pandemic, you know, bicycles were just like flying by. <laughs> so that's that's continued to be a major, major trend. It feels like E makes a lot of sense. And we'll talk about how E kind of correlates a little bit with safety. But I'm um I'm curious about how you see the e-bikes fitting and with the, like, at least from the coverage and the people you're talking to, there's obviously a consumer side of this where you have to have consumers feel comfortable and confident with having e-mobility products, including e-bikes, as well as battery electrical vehicles, BEVs. How do you see the e-bikes fitting or not fitting within the road to autonomy? Well, they are becoming like a new commuter's tool. I mean, I'm seeing them a lot as an option. They might not necessarily bike into work every day, but because of some of the hybrid situations now, they're only going to the office a couple of days a week. And so the chances are it might be easy for them to bike, but an e-bike really enables that to happen. They're not worried about getting their sweaty or keeping up with the traffic and some of those other issues, especially if you're in an urban environment. Mm-hmm. I split my time between the country and just so listeners know and, and New York City. So I'm experienced riding a bike in two different extreme environments. And so I think 
people on an e-bike feel a little safer too because they have the power. They're not going to feel like they can't keep up with the traffic or, in, in fact, other bicycle traffic. So I, I think that's been an enabler and uh, given a lot of us the option to say, hey, you know, um, uh, don't have to take the bus or drive my car into the city and especially – as everybody knows, the gas price now is like, I'll, I'll choose any option but to drive if I can help it. <laughs> so with the hybrid environment and specifically to big cities, obviously uh, New York, is uh, is parking an e-bike, is riding an e-bike? Uh, I mean, last time I was in New York was pre-pandemic. I cannot wait to get back to the city. But <laughs> e-bikes from in 2019 was the uh, the delivery food guys going right. like on a – they weren't even really bikes. They were basically like e-motorcycles. Like I would say almost kind of bandits flying 30 miles an hour faster than traffic. Yeah. But w- talk to me a little bit about on the consumer side where – I mean – E-vehicles makes a ton of sense. I mean, charging is prevalent everywhere. Tesla superchargers, we're seeing charge networks from ChargePoint and others. But like with the e-bikes, what about like parking the bike? I mean, you can't, obviously you can't even, like those are so big and heavy. Well, most of them anyways, not, we're not talking like the elite specialized turbo bikes, but the, like, talk to me a little bit about like, if you want to take an e-bike to work in the city in, in Manhattan, what, what's, what's the deal? What's the consumer experience like today? Well, it, it is difficult. Like I haul my, my bikes up and down stairs in Manhattan. So, you know, we're talking about a, a 65 pound bike and then it's got panniers on it and stuff in the back. So we're mm-hmm. talking, you know, closing at a hundred pounds to haul up and down the stairs. It's not fun to people who haven't been in New York city. You can't leave a bicycle locked on the street. That's not a thing. It'll get stolen just period. The end. That's not an option in Tokyo. You can leave them. Nobody will touch them, but mm-hmm. not in New York city. Uh, so a lot of offices though, are getting more amenable to bringing your bike upstairs. And especially with the hybrid situation, you know, you can usually arrange something like that. Um, I, I like, for example, a full, Double bike. I have a one for the city, and that's what I generally use. At that one, you know, push comes to shove, I can fold up and bring up an elevator somewhere. So it is possible to do that, but you're absolutely right. What's more popular here, at least in Manhattan, are the shareable e bikes. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, you could just pick it up anywhere and drop it off anywhere. And there's a lot more of that going around. I think that's a fairly popular thing. Yeah. And I, for, I imagine most of our listeners know Manhattan is relatively flat compared to San Francisco or. Or, uh, other parts of the world that have big cities. So it, it, it's a little bit more manageable to have an analog bike, uh, but e-bikes can get you a little bit farther, less sweaty. Now, from a safety standpoint, I noticed that on the shared bike systems pre-pandemic, not a lot of helmets and you know helmets are important. I mean, I, we talk a lot about vehicle messages, 5G and all the acronym soup you could think of about how we're going to make road safer for everybody, but helmets are still a pretty significant part of the equation. And we had on our, our last episode, Noah from People for Bikes even talked about concrete. So some of the analog products are, are also a critical tool. Like you said, uh, when you use the word tool about the mobility and, and transportation tools from a safety tool standpoint, what are you seeing? And I know you got a review coming out on, on helmets as well, but what are you seeing as far as like the uh, barriers to entry for folks use ride it riders to use those for shared mobility. Is that something you see a uh, growing trend or w- what are you seeing? I, I'm seeing a few more of those collapsible helmets. I, I, I've tested a few of them that sort of flatten down so you could throw them in a bag or something. They're a little bit more portable. If you're renting a bike or using a shareable, like a city bike here in New York city is a, is a typical scenario. And people are taking their own helmets too. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I just reviewed I, I, the whole slew of helmets. So I, on Tom's guide, you'll see the 12 best helmets for a variety of different users. So there's the enclosed like 
commuter style one that looks a little cooler than the other helmets and also is better in the rain and the snow and when you're facing those kind of environments. But I think the trend that you're going to see is like the Lumos helmet, which Mm has, uh, you know, turn signals on the back of it that you can control on the uh, the handlebars or if you have an iPhone, you can actually move it and make the gesture. Uh, So I, I think that's a great addition is for an urban uh, environment uh, where I see it as being very, very helpful. I really notice it as a driver too, because I drive a car and I notice it as myself makes me much more aware. Um, I think, uh, you know, the biggest protection you can get on a bike is being visible. Mm -hmm. That's the, a number one thing. And uh, I think you'll see more of that happening and making that easier uh, to spot. I also notice most of the e-bikes, I review a lot of e-bikes now uh, and have for a few years. And most of them, when you hit the brakes, they flash the rear light. You know, they, they're starting to do much more of that to get driver's attentions and to let people know what you're doing on the bicycle. Yeah, right on. I almost feel to some extent to the infrastructure needed for bringing bikes and maybe maybe it's not just infrastructure in the bike lane, it's infrastructure in the office. So having parking spots converted to e-bike valet and storage and charging, maybe it's having restrooms that include almost kind of like, I remember when I was a young man, you go into the the nightclub and you'd have like the person there with all the hair gels and it, maybe that's kind of part of it too. So that you don't, if you want to wear your own helmet, your, your hair is good to go. Uh, for a lot of people, both men and women, I mean, that, that's a real thing. I mean, you want to be presentable when you're, when you're rolling in. Yeah. And this, this issue of where to leave your bike too, uh, you know, I, I've been uh, studying bioethics at NYU. So I, I try down there a couple of days a week and uh they just went back into class in person when i when i was asked to do uh post-grad and they had a room in one of the buildings where you could actually bring your bicycles in and, and just leave it in mm-hmm. the room and they had like somebody sitting there a guard basically watching it you sort of need that kind of infrastructure to make a lot of this work you're right and and also uh it's like people have proposed these stations for evs where you can come in and charge your car and there'll be coffee and donuts you know and sort of and cnn on tv you kind of need that if you get your bike and what if you get a flat which is admittedly still a real pain to have to change a tire on a bike mm-hmm. so i think you know offices should start to think about stuff like that ping pong tables are nice but it would be great to have some of the things to support that bike commuter Interesting point you mentioned earlier about you're you're doing some work with AAA. I, as a AAA uh, and in the Midwest, I'm a Midwest guy. You got to have AAA because that's the only way, or something similar. Because you you got to get. I'm not paid by AAA for this podcast, but right. you got to get it. And, and AAA added a thing, and I noticed a years ago where if you have a flat and you need a ride, they'll actually come and pick you up and drive you somewhere, just like an Uber would with your bike, which is pretty cool. Oh, nice. I haven't checked see if they still do that uh, post pandemic, but the just uh, more of that like that confidence, like the end to end journey plan. And you have to know like how to get your bike, what to do with the bike, which that shared mobility takes care of for the shared e-bikes. But then there's that whole thing about um, what you're doing on the journey. And uh, to kind of transition a little bit back into autonomous vehicles, autonomous vehicles will be able to see bikes from LIDAR, from cameras. Uh, Our company and and the consortium we're working with through the standards through SAE are working on ways that you can see uh, each other around corners when you don't have a uh, physics line of sight, as I like to say. So I- I'm curious, you, you mentioned you-, you split time between 
urban and rural. And I, I'm curious within these, uh, within autonomous vehicles, as well as uh, safety situations, do you feel like there's going to be different technology for, for urban and rural on, maybe it's on the same standards, but like diff, like key different use cases, or do you feel like it's more of like an, a minimum viable product that is for both? And then it kind of expands out. So are we looking at like two different concurrent developments or is it like one set for connected autonomous vehicles and shared mobility that's for all both rural and um, urban areas? I think the, um, you know, the basic hardware platform or a combination of hardware devices will be uh, the same, but just like uh, people have learned about um, using autonomous vehicles, they need to know what the context is of where that vehicle is driving. So it's very difficult being in a parking lot as opposed to a suburban street, as opposed to being on the highway. And I think the same for cyclists. If you think about, um, you know, unfortunately, friends who have been in accidents and the kind of accidents that occur are very different on a highway in the country or a rural road mm-hmm. where what you're really concerned about is cars coming up behind you that you don't know are coming up behind you or maybe veering mm-hmm. off the road. Yep. Whereas opposed to in an urban environment, I don't want an alert system that's telling me cars are coming up behind me because they're always coming up behind me. I mean, it's just yeah. constant. What you want is for drivers in that situation to realize automatically that even though they can't see it yet, you're, they're about to come upon a bicycle, as you described. And it, and it can't just be the e-horizon that we talk about, but mm-hmm. it can be another truck that's blocking it. I don't see the bike, and then the truck pulls away, and suddenly I see the mm-hmm. cyclist. Yep. Those kind of maneuvers. And, and, and you know, as, since you work on this so much, I think the last, you know, pre-pandemic, everything's pre-pandemic. I was in Turin in Italy, and we were looking at systems there that would i was driving a car and it would ping you about cyclists and we actually had somebody you know cycling around the suburb that we were follow it's a very tricky mm-hmm. process because you want to have the right number of alerts but you don't want to have too many because then drivers start ignoring it but i do think the the systems will have to know the context they'll have to know oh i'm on a manhattan street as opposed to a vermont highway yeah, we, I think experience with uh, driving in a familiar area and in a familiar setting, which there's obviously a correlation between those two. So for someone, let's say that that's commuting from Connecticut into the city, that'd be a long commute. But uh, someone that's doing that would would I would expect have a lot of experience dealing with your morning sports cyclist on a tight road that might be a 45 mile an hour speed limit road where traffic could be going 50, 55, and then also have experience um, uh, giving safe uh, distance to the the e-bike and shared bike community that's out there. Right. And you definitely that safe distance is, you know, coming up on standards that people are working on and everybody wants is, you know, what is that safe distance, making sure that all these vehicles recognize the same distance and, you know, as a cyclist, you want to feel confident too that that vehicle isn't coming so close to you. And once you get used to these vehicles mm-hmm. in the future, which we're all looking very forward to, you know, it, that they always are, you know, so many feet from you, and you don't feel threatened by it, and you can you can ride with some level of confidence and safety. But you're right. I mean, it's tight on there are roads in Vermont. They've got no shoulder, and yep. there are these twisty, windy mountain roads that I love to drive cars on and test on. But of course, I'll come around to hairpin turn it. There's a cyclist right there in the middle of the lane. That's uh, just one of those things. Yeah, we have the same thing in, in Metro Detroit where I drive to go mountain bike at a really awesome bike park, uh, DTE uh, Park. And everyone knows it's very 
popular area. And there's a, a road, which is one of those classic uh, Midwest roads. It's windy. It's got uh, ascents, descents, and you pop around a corner. And I mean, I'm a, I'm on literally a white knuckle drive going down there to the trailhead, just scared because there's, there's no shoulder and you will catch right. on a weekend, a, a bunch of roadies out there doing what they're supposed to be doing. And it's, um, it, it definitely, I feel like there's got to be some tech that is appropriate. And going back to what you're saying about over alerting, uh, we're we're going to be um, uh, talking to Garmin um, uh, on the podcast, or they might be supporting the blog, but they have a new product out called the Varia, which is an, an original product. It's an amazing product. that's radar for for cyclists. Right. Their new version of it's got a camera on it, and um, I saw that this this week on. I think I saw it listed on Bike Rumor, and it 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 kind of. I'm curious in an urban setting, do you think that at some point it's kind of a little bit of a social thing where like if, if drivers, let's just say commercial drivers and, you know, we're talking Uber, Lyft, taxi, if they know that they're on tape, do you think they're going to drive a little bit little more, with a little more distance uh, knowing that everything they're doing is recorded or even just being in a city like New York where they know that they're, they're on camera as opposed to uh, at least where I live in the suburbs of Southeast Michigan I, I don't think drivers realize that we are taping them sometimes and it's uh, there's some accountability there. Right. I don't think they realize it either, but I mean, New York city is, is grand central station for bad actors. You know, if you, if you're going to introduce a technology and you want to see how people will misuse it or abuse it, introduce it in New York city. Um, yeah. That's the, the whole problem with e-bikes here that people are, as you mentioned earlier, you know, going 30 plus miles an hour, these things have been tricked out and, you know, deadly silent coming flying down. I just had a motorcycle go all the way through every single red light down Manhattan Avenue in the middle of the day yesterday. Wow. It's just like, okay, whatever. Right. So yeah. And, and all that stuff is being recorded. There are cameras everywhere. There's speed cameras and we have red light cameras here. That person couldn't have cared less. They were just going to go. Yeah. So I don't know how much, how much of a, um, uh, you know, a disincentive it is, uh, deterrent it is for people. Uh, but it's a good thing to have anyway. I think it's just uh, the state of the way things go. The way that we have them every fleet when they first introduce cameras in cars, you get tapped by somebody or fender bender. You had a recording mm -hmm. of it. You know, I have one in my car too, even. So, yeah, I think it's just the way things are going to go. On a somewhat related point, let's talk about uh, location data. So it's 2022. Right. Uh, it's not like, we're not talking, this isn't like the IOT is the future CES 2014 or whatever that was with big data, big brother. Right. Obviously there's still going to be people out there that, that have those beliefs. It's a free country. Totally get it. W what's your sense on consumer acceptance for sharing location data? Because in order for systems like this to work for electric vehicles that have these safety systems, which uh, in fairness, it's not directly related to the fact that it's an electric powertrain as opposed to internal combustion and ice powertrain, right. but the, the safety features are coming. But do, do you feel like the consumers are, are, are um, a little bit more, or maybe maybe a better question is like some of the companies that you talk to as a role as a journalist, they're, they're a little more comfortable with trading in some of the privacy as a consumer because they're trading in privacy for better safety and features, especially with big tech having such a role in, in cars these days. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think, um, in first and, you know, in going back, you know, mm -hmm. to the origination point of some of the traffic stuff and then ways, uh, when those guys, you know, for former TomTom -tom people, um, 
uh, in Israel when they started Waze and people, I mean, people like me immediately went, oh, wait, you just decided to be 45 minutes on that drive? 45 minutes? Are you kidding me? Absolutely. Go ahead. Take you know, take my location, please. Um, and now, if you add in the gas and the price of gas, of course, I think that's a, a no-brainer for a lot of people. And they got used to it, too, with Uber and Lyft. You know, they have, their phone is tracking where they're walking around all the time. And so whenever they want, you know, somebody to pick them up, boom, it just happens like that. Um, so I think when you have something of value to give them in return for that data, I don't think consumers have a problem with it when they see that obvious benefit. It's the, all the other, you know, does the dating app I'm using right now, do they actually have to know? I noticed it was tracking me everywhere I went. And it was like, okay, I suppose if I want, a date in this particular location, but it just seemed that seemed intrusive. So I think, you know, when there's a value and I think in transportation and mobility, I think consumers see that value pretty easily. Yeah. Saving time is clear um, with safety and is something I discussed uh, again with Noah from people for bikes and they are a trade association advocacy. And we also work really closely with the league of American bicyclists, which is a cyclist advocacy group. Five years ago, it was like bikes versus cars, and now it's bike with cars. In, in fact, uh, Stuart Rowley, the president of Ford Europe, put out a position uh, this past week that from Ford is that having a car is, is great, and but sometimes parking the car and going for a walk or a bike ride is is part of what Ford's story is. And I, I got to tell you, as a as a car guy, tech guy in Detroit, I never thought I'd see the day when an OEM would say anything involving parking their car for another mode of transportation and. I, it, it's progressive. And I, I'm curious, do you think we're going to see more positive micromobility positioning from Big Auto, which really changes the narrative of a lot of things, including Motor City? So maybe it's e-Motor City or not just motors on on cars. But I, I'm curious about your your thoughts about how the, the automotive community of OEMs and tier ones have changed their position and, and progressed it quite a bit. They have. I mean, I think they have to plan for that um, idea. I think that came from from two different areas, you know, congestion pricing um, in, in metropolitan areas and that idea of doing it. Now, really, you know, there aren't many cities that do it effectively. London and did it reduce traffic? Not really. Uh, it's a great money generator. So, you know, the idea of, but they want to put it into New York city and that still hasn't happened. But mm -hmm. again, it's unlikely that it will reduce traffic because the kinds of people that drive in Manhattan are the kinds of people that can afford whatever you want to charge them. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Steven Spielberg is still going to have his SUV pulling up on the West side. I've watched him drive up to his apartment. So that's just not going to change. Uh, but I think a lot of automakers realize that a lot of us, the rest of us, uh, for example, I don't park my car anywhere near my home in Manhattan, and I actually ride my e-bike to the garage because it's so far away where I actually park my car. And then I fold up the bike and throw it in the back and off I go. And I think that you'll see a lot more of that because A, it's more practical in many respects. It's uh, less expensive. I'm not driving the car right into the center of all the traffic in the middle of Manhattan. Um, and I think other cities will see that too. And the other trend more on the European side, but was cities saying they're going to ban vehicles from you know the core of mid downtown mm -hmm. areas. The kinds of areas where we travel, the historic parts of European cities are like, this is great. Uh, no cars, they ban there. So that is, again, another situation which, well, somebody has to get from where they left the car that last two miles or what have you, or last mile. And I think uh, I think the automakers saw that starting to happen, so wanted to be prepared for that, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's cool that you're you, like leveraging the e-bike for being like a 
it's almost like the the little what do they call little boats that go to the cruise ships? Like the cruise ship doesn't always come right, right into port. A dinghy. Yeah. yeah. So right. it's the dinghy. Yeah. And um, uh, also I love your, your point about the folding bike and going back to what we were talking about earlier is like, there, there might be some market there where uh, in the, maybe like thinking about this from a more of a rural setting or suburban setting, frankly, is that having an e-bike, if you have a house with teenagers and you've got like four drivers in the home, including the parents, then you might be in a situation where like two cars plus two e-bikes and an analog bike, let's keep the analog bikes in. I don't want to just kill all the analog bikes, right. but um, like maybe that's kind of the, like that would be like a suburban way of doing what you're doing in a, in Manhattan. Yeah. I mean, I do, I have a fixie in my here in Manhattan too. And it's like hanging from the ceiling because that's what you do in Manhattan. Um, you know, and I ride that in Central Park, that's for fun. Mm -hmm. But when I actually have to get to the car with a bunch, like I have a backpack and paneers and I might have, mm -hmm leftovers and books that I have to take and stuff. So all of that, you know, I've figured out a way to make that work, but you're right. It is like using a dinghy to get back and forth to the main, the main ship, the, the, the car that has to go the 200 mile drive. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how our habits have changed and, uh, already. And, uh, um, you know, I use, I test different bikes in the city and different bikes in the country, very different, you know, the, the, the fat tire bikes are now so common um, mm -hmm. that people are using. And then they started using them in the city because we have potholes in other areas mm -hmm. and realized, oh, that's a more comfortable way to ride for some of them. But um, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it definitely has changed my habits. And uh, the only time it hasn't worked is in the really deep snow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I've ended up walking most of the way back with a bike. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would I would suspect that at some point as – so by the way, for our listeners out there, what JQ does for like the last 25 years is probably what you will be doing five years from when JQ is doing it. So <laughs> it, like that's trend spotting on the early side and, and how it affects the US because I, I, a lot of people in the industry and a lot of these – a lot of our listeners uh, listening to the show, they, they know what's going on in Europe. They know what's going on generally. But trying to think of like these use cases and what actually works and why, like what the motivators are, I mean you're, you're, you're bringing some really cool – uh, perspective to uh, to this conversation about um, the the commuting within and out of these these major metropolitan areas. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I had to think about my apartment and stuff and carrying a bike upstairs because that's something I do several times a week. You know, so I, I, I looked at buildings that that would mean people would want something with an elevator more likely. You know, making a lot of these things more convenient, easier to do. The kind of truly racks that they develop mm -hmm. because. Bikes went from being like 35 pounds to being 75 yep. pounds hanging off the back of the, the vehicle. You know, all those things. And then how do you get the bike on that rack if you're, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as a, I'll write for the retired crowd to the ARP crowd. Well, they can't lift a 70-pound bike onto a rack, you know, yeah. midair. So thinking about all these ergonomics and ways to do these things is also intriguing. Absolutely. So I got to take a little time in the podcast because I tell yeah. you, our listeners are going to want to know this is about the journalist role. So you've been around and we're talking 25 years plus in industry, biggest tech publications and just covering what's what. Right. I, I'm curious, like what, what are you seeing now this year as a journalist for developing stories versus uh, quick hit and quit type stories? So like, are, are you seeing... Uh, your colleagues working on longer pieces with like multiple on this, or is it more just uh, like 
one and done type type situation. I mean, I'm much more of uh, I may work six months on a story, you know, uh, before it's published, which is hard for some companies to understand like, what happened to that story. Well, I'm doing research and I'm testing things and then I'm talking mm-hmm. to the scientists and, you know, uh, and researchers and stuff. It depends what it is. Uh, so it may it may take quite a long time. So I'm not really fast at trying to get a story out there. Um, the, the the challenge the last couple of years has been products. So um, you know, cars were a bit of a challenge too. So you know, they would drop one off, and we do all the social distancing and things, and then I'd drop it back off. So that was. That was okay. That sort of worked. But we're talking like 75-inch TVs, too, had to be delivered somehow. And then I had to get them inside myself and and then get them returned and all the logistics for that. Um, With bike companies, most have been pretty good. There have been a couple that have not been very good. (laughs) I won't mention who they are. But most, you know, followed the usual thing. And that was, you know, instead of delivering it... uh, put together, which they would have done in the past, uh, they, you know, it had to be shipped in a box and then we would put it together. There's, so there's extra effort that has gone into a lot of this stuff that we didn't have to do before. So it's taken extra time, but yeah, I tend to have st- multiple stories lined up that are several months away. Mm-hmm. So right now I, I even know, uh, for some trade magazines, I owe stories from now until September or something. Uh, and I know what those stories are and what I'm working on. There's a, a lot of the companies they've, they've been able to control that narrative and bef- like pre pandemic. And I mean, I'm really excited about CES and, and I was at CES this year in January. And I got to tell you that there, I've seen more e-bikes at CES and I saw it inner bike, which was the defunct trade show years right. ago. Yeah. Vaporware was real 10 years ago. It felt like people were just saying whatever they wanted to say and selling it. But I feel like now we're, we're at a point where there's no tolerance for vapor, which is good. But a lot of these companies are pushing out their own narratives. So from your perspective, how much of a difference are you seeing between what's being pushed from automotive bike companies, mobility companies versus what's realistically happening? Are we, are we at like a really good signal noise ratio at this point? That's a good question. Uh, you know, um, in terms of what they're pushing out, fortunately, it, you know, in the automotive space, as you well know, and and in the bicycle space, it's, they're actually pretty similar in the sense that with the motors and electrification, look, there are only so many suppliers. So I talk to those suppliers. I meet with those suppliers. They come into Manhattan and I have lunch with mm-hmm. those suppliers. So I know what is actually possible in these devices and vehicles. And I know what motors are going to come out a year and a half from now and how small they will be. And are they going to be, you know, crankshaft motors and what the wattage will be and all, and all of that. And, and that they're sold with a connectivity package so that, you know, the basic bike makers will probably also have that connectivity package. You know, that's what they're going to do. So I I get to see all of that. So there's a check on all those systems. There's always somebody else that is an agnostic third party to talk to. And it's just in the automotive side. But, you know, uh, if Continental is 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 going to tell me they don't have something ready for another year, so I don't expect the OEMs mm-hmm. to have it, you know, until a year and a half or something after that. So you do you do get it, get to check it. And some of the stuff, you know, companies like Bosch are doing it, it's just fascinating, great, innovative stuff. Uh, so always looking forward to those products and the advances are every year. Yeah, I, as a, a product person in the on my side of this uh, the table in this, this virtual podcast, what's cool is being at CES and and some other select shows is that you're talking to product people, you're getting a real vibe of what's going on. It's not just like looking at the website, looking at the 
the recorded and chopped up releases from companies and and being able to set trends. I think it was the first CES that I saw you at and you, your badge didn't have your name on it and did not say New York Times. You were like, oh yeah, I never travel with the New York Times badge. I just get swamped by people. And like, there's a little bit of a cool part of being clandestine and going around. Do you think that that kind of behavior that, that I do as a, a product person at shows, but as a journalist, do you think that's going to be coming back in, in earnest with these live shows again? I don't know. It might. Um, I've done, you know, we've had a lot of mini trade shows, what I call mini trade shows. You know, there'd be like, 40 companies or something at an event here in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, so those, those have started to come back. I didn't go to CES. I was booked to go. I was going to go. Mm -hmm. And then people were canceling meetings. And by the Friday beforehand, I had my last meeting was with George Church. He's a geneticist uh, behind a lot of companies. And uh, he basically, you know, helped with the human genome. And he canceled too. And I was like, okay, that's it. I, there's no, I'm not going to. Yeah, no, it's, it, it was, uh, it, it felt, it reminded me so much of uh, 2008, uh, like right on the cusp of like post-recession CES where the, the uh, I was saying earlier, signal noise ratio, it was awesome. Like very little noise and great people that were there were there to do business. And I, I think that for our, a lot of our listeners, they just want to know how to approach because doing PR in-house has certainly changed, especially from a small business perspective. But I'm curious if you have any, as one of the best and most trusted folks in the business, JQ, what advice do you have for our listeners? And keep in mind, most of them are execs and product people from tech companies and universities that are working on mobility, safety, and other things. Like, What, what advice do you have for them about getting the most out of working with professional journalists like yourself? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, most of it is just conveying the information that you can and saying when you can't, you know, um, uh, sometimes it's uh, proprietary information. Everybody's, you, what is what is somebody in the uh, electrification, they called it competition, not, not competition. Pre-competitive? Yeah, they're this competitive, but we're cooperating. Mm -hmm. So like, I, yeah. I, you know, I'm building a platform for these vehicles, but I'm talking to other people that are doing similar things because we're all mm -hmm. sort of pushing the envelope and, and, and getting things going. So there's a co-optition. That's what they called it, co-optition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so it's, it, it's an interesting juncture right now. You don't see this very often. Um, so, uh, but sometimes, you know, with somebody like me, a company could just tell me, look, I can't talk about it because X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. We'll talk to you six months from now or, um, you know, do something under embargo because I'm, you know, they do have to be careful, I have to say, because uh, there's some places that just will not honor embargoes and you've got to know who you're dealing with. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. somebody like me who's been doing it for decades, it's like, look, we'll talk about it now and we'll follow up two years from now, you know, that's okay. Cause I'll still mm -hmm. be covering that story, but yeah, just to be uh, able to tell people uh, we don't want to be involved because we don't want to appeal to the ARP crowd. We'd rather be in, in, in Gizmodo when you're doing the Gizmodo story, that sort of thing. Um, and, and sort of letting people know that. And the other is, that flexibility with products uh, because now everything has changed. We don't, we're not all in a single office where we're testing everything in a single lab and we have to move products around and it's become much more of a challenge um, helping them work out those logistics and understanding that because often uh, the shipping costs of some products are more than that writer is going to get paid to do the story. So um, that just to mm -hmm. give you some perspective on it. There. Yeah. 
I believe it. I, I, I saw um, a thing from Zwift, which is an online cycling company. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it was covered by DC Rainmaker, Race Great. And he, he put in his blog that uh, one of the things that their CEO mentioned to staff, and I'm paraphrasing, don't quote me on this, but something along the lines of, the cost of shipping are they canceled their their uh, their version of a Peloton bike basically they canceled oh, it because they're right. like something yeah. it was a quote like shipping a two hundred and fifty pound product to consumers right. is not a great idea or something it's like the way it was framed was uh, and and Ray covered it in his blog was was really um, I think kind of like spoke to that challenge when it comes to getting hands on so I mean I'm hopeful the trade shows do provide a little bit of that access point and and you mentioned about the mini shows. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, so, so be clear with journalists is what you're saying. Um, and, and tell them what you're, what's like, kind of like setting the zone. So like what's competitive, right. what's pre-competitive, what's co-opetition, where that goes and, and get you, get your product. Right. I mean, you got it. You're, you're a hands-on journalist. You need to be hands-on. Right. For me, it is. I mean, not for everybody, but even when I'm doing, I'm doing a, a trade, uh, publication, well, dealer scope, which is, you know, heavily CES and IFA and those shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I will do articles for dealer scope and that will be, uh, and I've done e-bikes there too, as a matter of fact, and EVs because retailers want to know how they're supposed to work with this. Should they have a charging station in their parking lot and what does it evolve mm-hmm. and, and, and what kind of clientele are they going to get? Uh, but also, you know, I'm doing, uh, just as an example, a countertop appliances. Now, some people might just read press releases and go from there, but I'm actually testing a bunch of countertop appliances so that in the article, we can sort of not endorse, but look, say that this is a good appliance for X, Y, and Z. It is significant of this trend and, you know, et cetera, uh, because you want to be reliable. We want the reader to know that if they see that there, that they can sort of count on that. Um, but they, you know, it's difficult, uh, a lot of new markets out there that I understand companies are working with and new outlets. And sometimes they don't really know who they're dealing with. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's gotta be a challenge too. I can't imagine, you know, how many new people come and go that they see, uh, Mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. Great points, JQ. So as we begin to wrap up, uh, I'm really excited that we'll be uh, exposing you to some of our uh, bike lane folks, which include ITS, inf- uh, Intelligent Transportation Systems, oh, uh, the, the work zones, and other folks that are, are quickly coming in to uh, your road to autonomy. So as we wrap up, um, can you share with us uh, where people can follow you, contact you, uh, like where are you at? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, on Twitter, because uh, people are always trying to get more followers until assuming <laughs> until somebody buys it. For 40-something uh, billion, but uh, sure. Something or doesn't. Uh, you can follow me at JQ on tech, and that's tech with a C-H. Not with a K. Uh, that's JQ on tech on Twitter. And you can always DM me or something there. And uh, my independent website uh, on the road to autonomy is all one word on the road to autonomy.com. Uh, you know, I, I'm not as good about getting stories up there, but you can also reach me through that as well um, and see some of the mobility things that are on there and uh, your car reviews. Uh, you'll find links to the bike helmet reviews and things like that and bike uh, e-bike reviews. Uh, I have to say I'm mostly an e-bike reviewer, not uh, even though some I have some really ardent cyclist friends and they're talking about these new automatic transmissions. I don't know if you've seen uh, just wild stuff. So mm-hmm. that's going to yep. be very cool as well. 
Well, from uh, reviewing the Mach-E to reviewing the latest e-bikes, uh, you're listening to The Bike Lane. That was John Quain, founder and editor-in-chief of On the Road to Autonomy. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thanks again for listening and see you next time in The Bike Lane.